0: one. The package being delivered. Fascists love to perfect a look. Hugo Boss's Nazi uniforms, the striking headquarters of the Italian fascist party, and the sleek presentation of Islamic State's dabik all have one thing in common. They're visually striking. Germany celebrates German Arts Day in Munich, 1939. Yes, this government half of which consists of men who once aspired to serve the arts, is conscious of the artist's role as an intermediary. So, too, with today's extremists. From the neo-Nazis of the Adam Waffen Division to the Order of the Nine Angles, there's a certain aesthetic flair. And that's largely down to a few influential artists. Vice extremism reporter and cyberhost Ben Maku recently went in search of one, Dark Foreigner, the artist who fueled a neo-Nazi terror movement. I'm Matthew Galt, talking to Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. All right, so just as a foundational piece for this, Ben, um, what is Siege and why is it important?
1: What is Siege? What is Siege and why is it important? Okay, so I would say Siege, the way I've always described it in my articles, is it is a 1980s neo-Nazi accelerationist uh, terrorism manual that preaches the art of insurgency, so things like you know, targeted assassinations, bombings, basically anything you can do to bring down the U.S. government or you know any global government that you so choose to go after. Now, this has been obviously adopted by by some very specific groups of people, and for today's standards, it's neo-Nazi accelerationist terrorist organizations. So this includes Adam Waffen division, the base, and some of these groups that you know many of our listeners have heard about uh, in the past few years. They basically believe that this this book is sort of a Bible, it's a way of, uh, of taking on the world. It's a path forward to you know bring about the end of you know the the organized structures of government that we know of them as today. And in that sort of, the embers of of this demise, they could then create their white ethno state, their their you know their preferred racist society. and that does include obviously, you know a, a race war would occur before that would happen or in their minds. <laughs> so what was on the cover of a recent edition of Siege? So there was a 2018 fourth edition that you know made the rounds basically shared probably thousands of times, if not more that we know of and on the cover there's this sort of very iconic figure he's got a skull mask on a black face sort of red dots for eyes and and it's become this thing that you know before beforehand it was something that that sort of this this neo-nazi siege-pilled types adopted but it sort of reinforced it and this image was created by someone that we only knew as dark foreigner. And the only things we knew about this guy was that he was Canadian. And in fact, I exchanged messages with, with him in 2018. He was he was very, how do I put it, cagey. Didn't get much for, more from him than that. And he kind of disappeared. Uh, but he's been this lingering figure. And this, you know, that cover of Siege really set forth how this entire movement would view themselves.
0: All right, so you, Y'all found him. Y'all went up to
1: Canada, and you found him. So who who is he? We found him, and it had been years in the making. His name is Patrick Gordon McDonald. He, we believe, he lives in suburban Ottawa. Uh, I, I went up to what we thought was, and think is his, is his home in Ottawa, which is the capital city of Canada. And I have to say, the way we found this out was, you know, it, it was very rigorously detailed. We got a few tips. We confirmed with, you know, intelligence and different law enforcement agencies. And it was, you know, it was a long term process that honestly, I I never thought we were going to be able to. Mac Lamara, my reporting partner and I, because, you know. Quite frankly, this guy is, was very good at operational security and, and disappearing online. You know, this is something that you know, you know, think about all the time. And I think about all the time people, reporters at Motherboard think about, you know, privacy and making sure you can't be found by, you know, different people. And this is something that Dark Foreigner did extremely well. Because I got to tell you, a lot of online neo-Nazis or even, you know, neo-Nazi terrorists who organize online, they always give something away. And this guy really didn't.
0: And it's so interesting, too, because at a certain level, all he's doing is making the art, right, that we know of. <laughs> so why, why was he, if he was just their, like, design guy, why is he so cagey?
1: Well, I think he had good reason to be because if we look at it now, I mean, he's affiliated himself with organizations that are designated terrorist groups, both in Canada and United Kingdom. Of course, Adam Waffen Division in the base uh, here in the United States, where where I work and where you live, they've been cracked down on by the FBI. You know, ad nauseum, They're, you know a major a major counter terrorist operation has been set forth against them, and you know they continue to be arrested and put in jail. So. Now, you know, in retrospect, he was contributing to these groups, yet he had, he had a lot of connections to them. We do know one detail that he visited uh, the UK to, to be with and I guess collaborate with a couple known terrorists who were there that were part of some of these groups, including, as you mentioned, the Order of the Nine Angles, which is this satanic terror movement uh, that, that's, you know, really nefarious. And one day, you know, we'll we'll write more about that. And he was picked up by, from our reporting, we we've, we've been told, picked up by UK counter terrorist officials and sent back to Canada. And now I think if he were to go back, you know, he would absolutely, I think, be be arrested in the UK because anybody who has any connection to those groups now could be put in jail in, in the United Kingdom for ten years. So I think you know y- you're right. I mean, it's that was something sort of we struggled with was like who, like. What was he doing? Was it was it a crime? And I think while he was initially doing it, it, it wasn't. And I think now, due to his connections, it certainly puts him on the radar of law enforcement in a very serious way, especially in his home country of Canada, because, you know, that, you know, going back to Siege, Siege is written by a man named James Mason. And James Mason is one of the very few individuals who has ever been designated as a terrorist entity by Canada. You know, not even Osama bin Laden was characterized as a terrorist <laughs> entity in Canada. I mean, obviously, Al-Qaeda was, but, you know, he himself wasn't. So dark foreigner Patrick Gordon-McDonald worked with him, uh, you know, promoted his work. So that that's definitely something that <laughs> I, I don't think uh, puts him in, in the good graces of the RCMP or the Mounties. So this is... Uh... We've kind of
0: talked around this a little bit, but I really want to get into it. So this is kind of a story in part about aesthetics, (laughs) right? Which are incredibly important to these online fascist movements. Can you kind of explain why, why aesthetics are so important?
1: Well, I got to tell you, so I've been reporting on terrorism now, I'm approaching a decade. I've been I covered ISIS initially in 2013, and I you know I migrated slowly over to the far right the domestic terror space because in part I saw it sort of booming in much the same way that ISIS was among young men, young angry men. And ISIS, you know, part of their their approach was you know the, their their videos and their propaganda was slick. You know, as as much as like it was horrific and awful. You know the all-black uniforms, carrying the AK. This stuff like really appeals to young, angry men uh, 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 of, a, uh, of a variety of political persuasions. And when all of this ISIS propaganda was happening, and you had groups like Adam Waffen Division emerge, they were kind of knowingly or unknowingly copying ISIS in, in many of the same ways. Like a lot of their initial uh, propaganda videos were guys who were dressed in you know black balaclavas with skull masks to go back to the to the cover of siege and wearing, you know, camouflage and carrying AKs. And it was sort of like the Nazi take on ISIS. And then when you started seeing its actual propaganda, you know, it was this really striking, overtly uh, aggressive, you know, very angry blood splatters, kind of almost like, like a horror poster with, you know, red eyes and, and, and you know, these, these very very punchy statements, stuff like, save your race, join the base, stuff like that. And that whole aesthetic was really, you know, fundamentally was sort of the brainchild of Dark Foreigner because he was the Atomwaffen Division's propagandist or one of its first and certainly its most successful. That really set the tone for not just, I think, neo-Nazi accelerationists, but also this sort of concept of tearaway, which is this aesthetic art movement that I think is also completely bled into the far right. And, and you, you see many different groups have, a, have adopted it. So it's, it's, you know, it's kind of the story of how this guy in a sleepy capital, this kid helped, you know, fuel a terrorist movement and nobody knew who he was. And he did it all so quietly.
0: What are the hallmarks of his style?
1: Is it all kind of terror wave? You know, it's some of the hallmarks are like it almost looks like he takes a sketch of a like a picture of someone and then plays with it on on, on Photoshop and darkens it, harshens the lines, gives it more shadow, gives them red eyes, and you know then puts like very serious statements below like zero tolerance, which is this you know neo-Nazi concept of zero. I mean, I think we can all figure out what that probably means, uh, and you know it, it's very much again, like these harsh, aggressive concepts. And, you know, the art historian we we spoke to for this piece very clearly told us, you know, it's sort of amateur, but you can kind of see it's this kind of like rookie artist who's trying to really shock the viewer. And I think, you know, in part, he spoke to the people that he was trying to inspire and recruit to these groups because, you know, he was that type of person. You know, he was a part of this whole movie. we, We tracked him when he was on Iron March and the things he said in the Iron March for the uninitiated was sort of this very serious neo-Nazi messaging war that helped organize the, you know, the Charlottesville rally in 2017, or or at least was, you know, groups were, were, were organizing there that ended up at that rally. So, you know, I think... Dark Foreigner has always been this guy that, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, was quite prolific. It's almost a little bit spectacular what he was able to do. Yeah, He started an artistic movement, essentially. absolutely. He did. As small and fringe as it might be. And I would say it's probably not that small. You know, it's quite big. You know, I I remember trying to craft this story initially. And when I was writing sort of the lead, I wanted to, to really drive home the point that this guy designed this aesthetic... That has gone on to help these groups recruit thousands of people and people who've been, you know, locked up on terrorism related charges all over the world and has become a bona fide national security threat. And I think that, that that point really can't be lost in a piece like this.
0: Yeah, every time you're interacting with somebody on Twitter that's anonymous and their avatar is a Pepe the Frog with glowing red eyes.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. That, yeah. Um, okay. There's, so a, there's an influence. There's a total influence.
0: What is he doing now? Is he still doing this kind of stuff or has he tried to pivot into
1: more legitimate work? So as far as we can tell, he runs a graphic design studio called Helios Studios in Ottawa. And he, he's a graphic designer. And the site of his alleged company that we found, you know, it, it's pretty slick. There's a lot of like pretty slick stuff on it. And also there's what we noticed was there's a lot of like imagery on it that very clearly sort of relates to his his pastime, his alter ego of dark foreigner. There's even, it, it was really weird. He made like a mock-up of a of a, a, a a red sun for this uh, Ukrainian wine distillery in, in, a, in, a, in an actual specific area of Ukraine where the far right proliferates and many, you know, the Azov battalion has people there, right sector has people there. We've written a lot about people who've gone there And it's a nexus point uh, for the war in Ukraine for far right travelers to go there and fight in the war. It's a city called uh, Lviv. And that red sun is almost identical to this other, you know, accelerationist neo-Nazi terrorist group called Creek Division, and their emblem or one of their emblems. And you know, this is a group that he very possibly could have worked for. And if he didn't work for them, uh, he certainly influenced them. So and it's like it's truly identical for people if they want to read the article. We have a, a great a great image of it. So yeah, I mean it's it's just it's 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 pretty wild that he's sort of dropped these little uh, how do I put it uh, breadcrumbs to to who he is. So
0: Ben, you've been away yes. from cyber for a bit. I've been filling in. You've been off chasing extremists. Um, so I'm getting used to this mic. I think I like it. <laughs> Uh, do you mind if I host cyber for a little bit while you're out chasing these
1: stories? I do not mind at all. In fact, this was, this is, I even demanded it. I said, uh, Matthew, I'm going to call you Go, but you're not, you're, you're Galt. You're a little American, but um, yeah, no, I was it's great. I, you've been doing a fantastic job. I'm going to be doing a an, extremist, uh, an extremist-centered project for the next little while. So listeners of cyber will have to, deal with your smooth baritone voice and your excellent interviewing style. she should also add that I had streps throughout the last two weeks so cyber listeners you literally were spared from like the worst voice ever and that's what happens when you go out too much after COVID's over
0: Bid Maku, I will uh, fuck I don't even know what to say just Vin say Macu, you will that th-
1: keep that seat warm for me, bro. <laughs>
0: <Vin> <laughs> Macu, I will keep the seat warm for you. Thank you so very much.
1: Thank you, sir.
2: Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better. Well,
3: Hello
0: everyone, I am Matthew Galt and this is Cypher, that part of cyber where we decipher the week's biggest tech stories. With me today is Motherboard staff writer Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing great, Matt. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing all right. You know, we're recording on this on a Monday. There's a pretty big uh, story uh, in our in our circles that's kind of going through the news, but we will we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, the first... Let's talk about something that filled me with great joy that happened last week, and that is police destroy 1069 nice Bitcoin miners with big ass steamroller in Malaysia.
3: Yeah, this is a pretty funny story, especially for the video that the police posted. And in the video, you can see, as you said, like a steamroller crushing all these Bitcoin miners, uh, these rigs. And, you know, it's it's unclear to me why they decided to do this other than for you know, meme points, I guess. They could have, I guess they could have just, uh, you know, deconstructed the computers, sold some of the graphics cards, maybe a manual would have bought a few. Uh, but no, they decided to destroy them. And, you know, jokes apart, this shows how huge, how big of a problem Bitcoin mining has become. In this case, the the computers were were seized as part of an investigation into people that were stealing electricity and some of the numbers in this investigation are pretty impressive they say that the the value of the of the bitcoin mining was 1.25 million dollars and the company the electricity company in Malaysia estimates that it lost 2 million dollars in energy that was stolen so these are you know this is a lot of money is a lot of energy. And this is probably just a little slice of the problem. And, you know, it's really unclear to me how we can sustain Bitcoin mining and cryptocurrency mining in the future.
0: Well, I mean, all of this feeds into this big story, I think, kind of in Southeast Asia right now, where, you know, from China and everyone else on down are really cracking down on Bitcoin mining, right? Right.
3: Yeah, China, I think recently just outlawed Bitcoin mining and essentially kicked out all Bitcoin miners from their country. And we're talking about a place where, you know, this was very common. Motherboard itself a few years ago did a great documentary on a few large, you know, gigantic Bitcoin mining facilities in China. So, yeah, it's a big deal that China banned it. We'll see if other countries follow. You know, I guess my biggest concern here is that the the Bitcoin miners in Malaysia would, would have been fine if they, were not, if they had not been stealing electricity. So, yeah, I don't know if this is like a way to solve the problem.
0: I, I mean, you may be right. It is part of a bigger complex problem, but I, ju- I really did just revel in the video, which is very satisfying. As sad as it was that all those GPUs were destroyed, which there's a shortage of caused by, in large part, Bitcoin mining. Um, I did enjoy watching a steamroller just destroy all of it. It was very satisfying.
3: Yeah, it was very satisfying and, and it, it probably does send a message to Bitcoin miners that you know, if they do something wrong, they're gonna get caught and their uh, precious hardware is gonna get crushed.
0: All right, let's let's move on to one of your pieces uh, that I found very, very interesting and really plays into a major news story that's ongoing. Mysterious Israeli spyware vendors, Windows Zero Days, caught in the wild. What is going on here, Lorenzo?
3: Yeah, So this story was based on a new report by Citizen Lab, a digital rights group that for a decade now has been tracking the use of spyware by governments all over the world, specifically targeting human rights defenders, activists, and journalists. This is in their latest report here, they outed a company called Kandiru. Although right now the company may have changed names, uh, it's pretty secretive. A lot of these companies, especially early on in their life, are. Uh, What we know about the company is that it sells uh, computer spyware. Allegedly, they also sell mobile spyware, but there's not a lot of evidence of that. And in this case, Citizen Lab and Microsoft found that um, Kandira spyware had been used against uh, or was used to target 100 people all over the world Uh, citizen lab in particular found one european person didn't really specify who this person was all they said was that they were politically active so you know their their argument was you know we're talking about this because this is probably a misuse Uh, this person doesn't appear to be involved in any crimes and they were targeted likely for their political beliefs. And this is just, you know, the latest example of abuse of this kind of technology. In this case, it was a new company, this new company called Candiru. But over the years, we've seen, you know, a handful of companies all over the world. Italy is, you know, hack- hacking team in Italy, Finfisher in Germany, NSO Group in Israel. Candiru is also Israeli. So there's been so many of these and so many cases of abuse that it's hard to count now. And, you know, it's really getting to the point where someone needs to do something about this. And I don't know who though, and it's a complex problem.
0: All right, so just to make sure I understand, we, we kind of have this, this market where what I'll call like cyber mercenaries are releasing easy to use programs that um, unpleasant people are using to track journalists, citizens, activists, that kind of thing, right?
3: Yeah, and I think cyber mercenaries is a fair way to describe these companies. We're talking about companies mostly based in the West that market these to everyone in the world. Uh their argument is that their justification and their their defense is that they only sell to governments, only sell to law enforcement authorities, intelligence agencies, and they've had these customers. But you know, over and over over the years, this Argument has been put into question by these discoveries by Citizen Lab, Amnesty International, and other researchers. You know, I think I think you can't really say that you vet your customers if you sell to Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or Ethiopia. It's you know, we know that these countries are not always very friendly with the journalists and dissidents. Uh, you know, same, same goes for Mexico, a country that where corruption runs rampant. So even if you sell to government agencies, you don't really know who they're going to use it against.
0: And so one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is because it feeds into a larger, another story that the guardian just broke. Can you kind of tell us what's going on there and how this plays into all of that?
3: Yeah, over the weekend, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and a handful of other news agencies working together with Amnesty International and a French journalist um, NGO published a a series of stories that detail uh, the stories of uh, dozens of people targeted by NSO group Spyware. The stories are based on a leaked list of uh, 50,000 phone numbers that NSO customers Targeted. It's unclear if they were, you know, on a target list. Um, you know, it's unclear how many of them were actually hacked, how many of them were actually targeted. Uh, but there are some compelling stories. There are like stories of journalists in Hungary. One of them, when uh, he found, finally found out that he had been hacked, went through you know, the logs of the, of his iPhone getting hacked and his emails to government officials. And he found that uh, in a few cases, his phone was targeted right after he sent a request for comment, like really uh, staggering stuff. Amnesty International also found evidence that the wife of uh, Jamal Khashoggi and his uh, fiance were hacked and targeted uh, around the time of his murder. Um... You know, there's just, and this is just a few examples, and there's more coming out. There's also stories in Mexico. Uh, we're talking about po- political dissidents, but also people who work in politics, politicians in India. You know, it's it's all over the world, and you know, again, it's just another story that that shows that this this market is completely unregulated and out of control.
0: So this is this feels like this is the beginning. Of coverage of this, right? This is something we're going to probably be talking about for the next few months.
3: Yeah, there must be so many stories here. Amnesty International has analyzed 37 phones, but the Washington Post and the Guardian and others have said that they've been able to identify a thousand people or more in the in the list of 50,000 numbers. And some of these people, I think, will be coming out. Some of them are already uh, coming out, and denouncing their, you know, their surveillance and. And sort of speaking up against the governments that have gone after them, NSO has been, as usual, denying all these accusations. Um, their CEO has said that he's worried about them and he's going to look into them and they'll, you know, they'll launch an internal investigation. They've said that in the past and recently they have said that they have um, cut ties with some of their customers or, you know, sort of punished them in the past. But it's really hard to tell because NSO doesn't re- doesn't reveal who their customers are they don't say who these you know customers who they cut ties with were so it's just we have to take them at their at their ward and you know it's it's been years and years of stories of dissidents being targeted journalists being targeted you know it's not it's not just an isolated case anymore just just in Mexico I think there's been more than 25 30 individual cases being identified Saudi Arabia has had a handful as well so it's you know it's, it's getting harder and harder for NSO to to just keep telling us that everything is fine.
0: I have a feeling you're going to be back on the show to talk with us about this again. Um, but let's let's close out Cypher this week with something that is both horrifying and lighthearted. Uh, and that is another one of your stories. Professor says being impersonated by Iranian hackers was stressful, but good for networking.
3: Yeah, so this started as a pretty standard story on uh, another report, uh, this time by a cybersecurity company, proof point which found that some Iranian ha- hackers had been targeting academics and think tank policy analysts and stuff like that and people like that and which is something that you know happens all the time it's it's interesting when when it gets caught it gets caught what was interesting in this case was that they actually they impersonated two specific professors in london uh and they used, they pretended to be them in reaching out to their targets, inviting them to non existent conferences, asking them to open documents. And these attempts were actually pretty well done. Uh, in some cases, they even offered to uh, like talk on Zoom or other or Skype, which was interesting. And so we reached out to the two academics that were impersonated, and one of them decided to talk to us, and he was very open. He said that, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't very nice to be targeted. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of people reached out to me, and I, I had a lot of interesting conversations. Uh, I think he was referring to the fact that, you know, some of the targets were smart enough to see that they got an email from, like, a Gmail account rather than the professor's uh, official university account. So they reached out to his university account saying, hey, is this real? What's going on? So yeah, it's it's a cool, you know, it's a funny window into the life of someone who's targeted by government hackers.
0: Do we have any idea why the IRGC targeted these professors?
3: I think, uh, I don't think they were well, they're, they're, they're interested in, you know, any sort of discussions or anything that goes on in terms of a uh, international diplomacy related to Iran. Um, It's part of their mission to, you know, keep an eye on everyone, uh, not just government um, officials, but also academics and diplomats and sort of the larger policy world.
0: Lorenzo, thank you so much for coming on to Cypher, as always, and walking us through these stories. All of these lovely stories and more are on Motherboard. And, you know, I think we're going to be, as I said, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this cyber mercenary spyware stuff in the coming months. So I look forward to talking to you about it again.
3: Yeah, looking forward to that too. Thanks, man.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.